1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Shunetra Gupta, who's a professor of theoretical epidemiology at University of Oxford. So, uh, Shunetra, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, tell me about uh, your background and uh, how you got to the current area of research you're in right now.
3: Okay, so background. Well, I started off I was born in Calcutta, I spent some of my early childhood in Africa and but mainly grew up in Calcutta. Certainly uh, what I call my formative years were spent there. So high school and became very interested in various aspects of science, particularly, well, so it was actually quite tricky because I was interested both in physics and biology and all sorts of, as well as also the arts. Anyway, then I was very fortunate to go to Princeton University as an undergraduate in the 80s. And I uh, started with the idea that I would study physics. But then when I got there, I realized that there was this other whole area that was very exciting, that was just taking off at the time, which was applying mathematics to understand biological systems not just physical systems, which is what I'd been used to and what I was attracted to. So so quite early on as an undergraduate, I was, I was very fortunate. I was in an environment where that was possible. So there were some amazing people around, some mentors like um, Robert May, who were at Princeton and were who had started off in, as physicists, but were applying the same ideas to biology. And that's how I got started on what I do now.
2: When you say uh, modeling biological systems, what
3: does that mean? Okay, so all systems, we we try and understand them by developing models. Some of them are verbal models, but another language that we have at our disposal to make models is is mathematics. You might say, what do you mean by model? What I'm saying is that when you have a very complicated system that you need to understand, you need to substitute it with something simpler that you can, you know, study and understand more completely than, you know, the really complicated system that it represents. So that's a very common way in which we understand pretty much anything, actually.
2: Uh, so what kind of systems are you modeling, you know, what, in humans, and mice?
3: So I'm interested in, 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 so I became quite early on interested in infectious disease systems because these are of course, complicated systems, but they are effectively kind of ecological systems, which involve us and some kind of bug, bacteria, virus. And so the interaction between two species is the core of infectious disease systems. And that, so I started to apply my skills in using mathematical models to understand biological systems to this particular problem quite early on, because it fascinated me. And also, obviously, there was this idea that maybe if we understand this better, we might be able to do something to stop, to to alleviate the burden of disease, which is, of course, one of the biggest problems that mankind faces.
2: OK, so what diseases are you modeling? Like currently, what's your research about right
3: now? So a lot of my research right now is on influenza. And through mathematical modeling, we've actually come up with a new idea of how to make a vaccine that might protect us against all strains of influenza. The problem with influenza being that we do have vaccines, but they only give limited protection. And that's partly because it keeps changing much in the way that we've observed the coronavirus kind of changing with time. So because of that, we have a problem. Uh, protecting people who are vulnerable from influ- dying from influenza. Uh, and we keep having to update the vaccine uh, every couple of years or so just to catch up with what the virus is doing. But we developed a mathematical model that suggested that there were parts of the virus that were not as um, wildly variable as people previously believed, which c- provided the basis for making a vaccine That could protect us, well, like where one shot would give you protection against flu, all kinds, all strains of flu. So that's one of the big things that I'm working on at the moment. But generally speaking, I would say I have developed this theory of how pathogens evolve, something I did, you know, 25 years ago and more. And since then, I've tried to test the theory, which we've been doing in various ways, and also. Uh, now we've got a stage where we're actually applying it to develop therapeutics and vaccines and, you know, inform policy.
2: Well, what do you mean? What's your theory? Tell me about it, please.
3: OK, so the theory, as I said, so, OK, one of the analogies that I use. So we're talking model and now an analogy for the model. But, you know, that's how we understand things. But it, I, I use an analogy which uh, I call the wardrobe analogy. So the idea with flu, the conventional wisdom about influenza is that it has this very large wardrobe. In other words, um, it's the pieces that the clothes that it wears are what our immune system recognizes it by. It has this capability to go and change those clothes, which is something, for example, the measles virus doesn't have. So the measles virus, if you make a vaccine against whatever is circulating at the time, The virus isn't going to change. It doesn't have a wardrobe that it can go and change its clothes um, out of. So that's why the measles vaccine works so well. But the flu virus does have this wardrobe and it can go and change its clothes and come back dressed differently. So our immune systems don't recognize it. But the conventional wisdom was that the wardrobe was very that had a really big wardrobe Had lots of different hats and coats and skirts and shoes and whatnot and uh, and so that it would be very difficult to so the only option that we have if that's the case is to try and anticipate what it's going to be wearing next and make the vaccine accordingly but our theory suggested that no perhaps that wasn't true and that actually although it does appear in different um, outfits uh, flu like most of us is actually just cobbling together new outfits from a limited wardrobe so it only has five shirts but it pairs it up with different you know skirts and different shoes and whatever so what that means is so the reason we developed that theory is because it's very difficult to explain how influenza behaves the epidemic behavior of influenza in in populations unless you um, make that assumption that actually some of its wardrobe isn't as diverse as we might have thought it was so that's interesting theoretically but what it has a very important implication which is that if you can find the five shirts if you can locate those five shirts within the virus then you could make a vaccine which covers all of those various possibilities Uh, and that would protect you against all flu strains So we've been very fortunate in that we have actually managed to find these sort of regions, these these elements of influenza's wardrobe that are not so variable. And we've actually patented, successfully patented a vaccine based on that idea. So that's a very nice example, I think.
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show.
2: What, what changes on uh, flu on influenza? What areas and what and what are they called? And how many variations are are theoretical in the you know in the areas that change?
3: So the influenza virus has. A molecule called uh, hemagglutinin, um, which, a bit like the spike protein of coronavirus, is the protein, is the bit that it uses to gain entry into cells. So it's a bit that sticks out of the virus. So the surface of the virus is decorated with these proteins. And so on the flu hemagglutinin, we found a region that is limited in the number of conformations it has the number of states that it can exist in and we're pretty confident that if you that if we can make a vaccine that includes all these various states which of which there are you know five six depending on the subtype of flu that we should be able to uh, create what's uh, or reach the, the holy grail of uh, making an, a universal flu vaccine
2: in modeling how many different possible permutations can flu have do you think Unlimited or, you know, only a few hundred or billions or how many?
3: So that's so, so the, the point is that this is only one part of. So, so there's variation in this particular region and there are other regions which are also um, variable. And some of them have well, most most of those regions that we've studied so far also have a similar level of variation. But the trick here is that if you combine them then you get many more possibilities overall in terms of how many strains there can be in that, for example, if one region has five variants, another region has five variants, then if you mix and match, you get 25 different outfits. So that's a lot of, and then, you know, another five, another five, you know, you you start to scale up pretty quickly in terms of how many different strains you can have. But the beauty of the vaccination strategy is that as long as you target any particular locus of variation? So if you just include the five in the vaccine, then the virus cannot evade vaccine-induced immunity, even if it comes dressed up in a completely different outfit than what, what does that what mean? It was you before. have
2: to you have to have what variation for all the possible sites that can change or. Do you no, get all the That's variations of, of one particular site or what do you mean? Yeah.
3: So, so yeah, exactly. So if it's got five hats, then as long as you've got, as long as you train your immune system to recognize those five hats, then, then you're done because then the immune system is on alert and it doesn't matter what it does with the rest of its outfit. As long as the hats are within the repertoire of what our immune system recognizes, then the virus is not going to be able to succeed.
2: Well, how do you know that?
3: How do we know that?
2: Yeah, well, has it been tested and viruses have no way to, you know, influenza has no particular way to escape if you have all the variations of of one part of its, uh, you know, ex- very on exterior.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
3: So the truth is that most, so we've um, obviously done some of the experimental work the, the, what's known as the preclinical work to show that indeed you do get an immune response to these hats, should we call them, that those are protective in mice anyway. So on the next stage is to do the trials in, in humans. So yes, it's still an idea and it's still, we've patented it, but we've got a long way to go before that vaccine appears on the shelf. You're asking a very important question, which is what if the virus decides to make a new hat? Now that you've, we've, you know, got the number on its, the five hats it's been using so far. And the truth is that there are a lot of biochemical constraints that would prevent it from doing that. And the evidence for that is that if you look at the history of influenza, you can see that when it, when they run out of hats, So let's say you start with the red hat, blue hat, green hat, yellow hat, pink hat, and then you're out of hats. So actually you have to go back and use the old previous hat. And we have been able to demonstrate that that is exactly what happens during the evolution of of influenza. So we're pretty confident that it's not going to go and stitch itself up a whole new
2: hat. Well, what if it goes into a, a latent Phase, you know, based on having X, you know, whatever hats it has or it modifies itself so that it's latent for a while. And then maybe it, uh, is, is, it is able to stay in the body and the immune response is muted or the immune response maybe is, uh, I know goes on for a period of time where it's just, uh, I don't know what the term is called, but, um, you know, the body stops recruiting a substantial amount of defenders because it just seems to be persistent. This no, necessary immune does
3: response. Not, does not, is, is not really able to persist because Of course, you know, our immune responses are fantastic. So um, those very cunning viruses that are able to persist, like HIV and hepatitis C virus and herpes viruses, have to have a very sophisticated mechanism. They've devoted a lot of their um, resources to specifically evading the immune system. So uh, that's not really an option for flu. Well,
2: what, so no vaccine makers know this? And they're they're making vaccines and they're just... that. That only work what 50 percent level, but they have no idea about this. About what? About the, uh, the you know the potential number of, uh, of variations in this one part of flu that you're you're talking about. I mean other other vaccine make, no, you know, no, the vaccines for flu. What what is their strategy that's different? How is your Why? Different?
3: Okay, so there are two strategies. So the people who the current strategy, which is of course you know the best we have at the moment, is simply to anticipate what's out there right now and make a vaccine that's specific to what's circulating. And that's fine. That's where what we have at the moment. And then there are a number of other groups who are trying to make a universal vaccine based on the idea that there are some parts of the flu virus which are even more unable to uh, vary. So they're totally conserved. And that is absolutely true. Any, any bug will have bits of it are absolutely invariant. The problem is that those regions, those that are completely invariant, so let's say all flu viruses wear the same socks, but those making antibodies against those socks is difficult because that's not a normal natural target of immunity. And also once you make those antibodies, they're not as effective because the socks are either hidden or they're just in some sort of they're, they're positioned within the, the virus in a uh, in a way that makes them less effective as targets of immunity. So even if you have the antibodies, they either can't get there, or when they do, what they do isn't doesn't have is not that consequential for the virus.
2: So there's no active region that's also highly conserved. It seems to be a seesaw. Is that what you're saying?
3: That is exactly that's a very good way of putting it, and that that is true. So so that's the, where the contrast with measles lies. So with measles, there is a region, the antibodies, our antibodies target a region which is in the receptor binding site, which is active in the sense that, you know, that site is what it has to preserve its integrity. Otherwise, the virus will not be able to bind and get into the cell. So if you lose that, so, so it can't mutate out of that. So that is precisely what constrains the measles virus to not be antigenically variable. And, uh, and that's why the vaccines, both natural immunity and vaccination against measles confers lifelong immunity.
2: So what kind of viruses seem to have these, uh, these active portions that are amenable to this and which ones seem to act like measles, that they have active portions that, uh, are also conserved, but uh, yeah. you know, you're able to make, mm-hmm. I mean, you, can you do any modeling to evaluate when there's a new pathogen or an existing one? Oh, based on your model, we'll never be able to, to do the same thing. Or based on your model, we don't need to, or we do. Can you extend it out well, to other
3: uh, viruses? I'd love to say that I really appreciate the way you've put that because that is the fundamental dividing point between whether we have, you know, when you might ask and I'm often encourage people to do so. Why are there vaccines against some pathogens and not against others? And that's the critical feature. So if the active sites, as you're calling them, are, are conserved, then that means the virus is pretty much stuck when it comes to a vaccine. As soon as you make an immune response, you target that site and that's it, game over. And that's what's happened with all the vaccines that we have, the wonderful vaccines that protect children, particularly against measles, mumps, rubella, you know, all these diseases, they operate on that principle. And then we've got this other bunch of diseases that we haven't been very uh, successful making vaccines against, precisely because those sites are variable and flu is one of them. But we're trying. But does the model tell you which, where, you know, will, will one, is it going to be measles or? Are we looking talking about flu no because i i don't think we could have said for example the coronavirus i was hoping that it would be more like a flu type situation that once that it wouldn't be able to exhibit the kind of antigenic variation that it clearly does exhibit but um that's not the case and no amount of mathematical modeling could have told you that you need the data you need to observe what it does
2: yeah, but in order to have what, a model, there's got to be there have to be factors that will lead to variability or not. I mean, is it you know are RNA viruses uh, by nature a lot more amenable to your model, and therefore we know will vary, or you know there's got to be some you know, correlation if you look at different pathogens.
3: It, it depends on uh, where what the plasticity of the the receptor binding site is. I mean, to, to what extent that the really functional parts of it, to what extent can they vary. And unfortunately, we do not have enough of a hold on structural biology or indeed functional um, role of particular molecules to 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 predict that. But it becomes pretty obvious very quickly. Uh, I would say where the role of mathematical modelling, you know, what, what where it's played a role in developing our flu vaccine is by highlighting something people did not expect, which is that there are regions which are highly immunogenic. So surrounding the receptor binding site. So they have a function or they're constrained functionally, but they uh, are also immunogenic, but they're not invariant. So it's sort of somewhere. So people had this notion, which was really one of extremes. You know, either you have an invariant functionally constrained site, which if you can target it, you're home and dry or. It's just too variable, and we have to come up with some other strategy and What we've said is actually the mathematical model modeling shows that there are these regions which are somewhere in between they're not completely invariant, they're still highly immunogenic and functionally important, but they come in a restricted set of confirmations, and that if you make that assumption, that allows you to explain the epidemiology of the virus, the pathogen. It allows you also to develop a vaccine focusing on any one of these regions, which are functionally constrained, but not to the point where they're invariant, but also do not have unlimited variability. So it's finding these epitopes of limited variability, which are nonetheless highly immunogenic and protective. That is an idea that arose completely out of a mathematical model it's not something that arose from looking at the data it's not something that just became evident in any other way so that's where mathematical modeling plays a role in conceptually highlighting these um uh you know these potential scenarios and then of course what we was very important what we spent 15 years doing was actually hunting for these regions and um doing the experimental work to to demonstrate that they were there and uh, that they could be utilized to make a vaccine.
2: What about an area that, you know, do different parts of a, vir- a virion have to act in a chain or a cascade, meaning one molecule moves and then unlocks, you know, a proboscis-like uh, protein or, uh, you know, another area which allows the rest of the virus to complete its entry? And maybe, therefore, if mm-hmm. you attack one of the gates that would unlock some of the, you know, the viral machinery that would stop it as well.
3: Yeah, and there's some very beautiful work um on the dengue virus that that actually exploits that um, idea um, very nicely, showing that you could you can target uh, exactly as you say part of that mechanism, uh, whereby the 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 actual molecules have to transform in order to uh, gain entry into the cell and if you can block that process that 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 is a, a potential route for, for vaccination as well
2: mm, okay um i know you don't want to give away your model obviously it may lead to really you know to great stuff to no, vaccines, the mod, cetera, the, these
3: are all they're all in the public domain so. right.
2: but what what um what can you say about the model like what factors have you found are important in modeling whether an area is going to be highly conserved or variable or immunogenic, like what parameters of your model seem to make it work and fit
3: so the model is very general and and it's one that sort of visualizes the pathogen as, as containing these regions of that are immunogenic and of uh some level of variability so so it's a multi locus model as we say, so you've got the pathogen as seen as a string of epitopes epitopes you know being the bits the the parts of the wardrobe so you've got the wardrobe and you've got all these different um uh, there's a set of um uh, epitopes or you know things that are recognized so shoes hats whatnot and you have different levels of variation in each so you know a virus may have 15 different hats and only one shirt or well as i said one pair of socks but the socks are hidden so uh, you could never see them, so they're not very useful as a vaccine candidate. So, the model itself is very general. And what it does is it just takes that kind of structure and says, How will a pathogen population evolve, given that obviously they, any virus, particularly, can mutate, in other words, change its wardrobe very, very quickly. But that in order to succeed, it has to find an outfit that uh, evades immunity um, that's pre-existing in the population. So if the population's already seen a sequence of viral, or experienced a sequence of different viral strains, then of course they're on alert to, they they have knowledge of various parts of that wardrobe. So what the model shows is that the, the virus that will then succeed within that this landscape of immunity in in the host population is one that finds an outfit that is within that landscape, the one that's least likely to be recognized. And so then that outfit um, confers a significant selective advantage to the virus, and then it grows out. But
2: if variants are are inert, at what point are they changing their outfits? Is it only after a post-infection event inside a host?
3: It's through mutation. Yes. Mm-hmm. But again,
2: system. does it does it does that only happen post infection? You know, there when the virus yes. so first mm-hmm. of all when a virus first gets into the body, does it present itself in such a way as to be non-immunogenic and only when no. it's entering into a cell actively that it's more visible to the immune system?
3: No. I mean the various parts of the 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 virus are visible to the immune system all the way along, but um it's Mostly, the immune system. The reason a virus succeeds is because the immune system can't, uh, doesn't recognize it as something that is previously seen. But no, when it recognizes does,
2: it, and it, it goes overboard. You know, or it recognizes well, that, it, that, and, and the virus changes, or, or that
3: and, certainly can happen too. Yes, mm. that is an, an, another issue which has well, to. Well, at what with point? Ecology.
2: Yeah, at what point do you think a, a, a mutation would occur? And under what circumstances again is it only after a variant enters a cell and the progeny have the mutations that come out of the cell, yes, or is it right.
3: yeah or is it in the correct.
2: very odd stage when they they haven't yet infected a cell they're they're changing no, at that point
3: no they they will change at the time that they replicate within the cell, and that's very well documented that they produce a lot of variation at that stage because they're not very good at copying their own r n a so, uh, so they make mistakes one, all the time.
2: Right, the the one you're proposing though, it it sounds like it would actually stop that initial, or it would it would it would stop infection events in general, because that's part of the active machinery that the virus uses to infect. Or are you targeting stuff that is not involved in the actual infection steps, but is no, immunogenic. Right. It,
3: you're absolutely right. It, what it's doing, what what the vaccine that we are thinking of, well, that we've patented, uh, would, would do, is. Make sure that there are antibodies in place already, or you know, memory of antibodies that could be recalled um, to prevent the entry of viruses into cells. So what? But so that's what the vaccine would do. What effect would it have? Would it stop infection completely, or would it simply stop severe clinical consequences? We don't know. Just as we with the corona, well, I think it was very evident actually with the coronavirus vaccine that what we were about to uh, release uh, would probably have the effect only of reducing disease severity uh, but that's because natural infection of coronaviruses does not do much more than that so we don't really know whether this vaccine would be simply acting against disease or against further infection but it should have the effect of stopping people dying of flu which is really what we want to achieve.
2: And I guess last question so is it that we don't understand what the you know the proteins and the other structures on the outside of the virion do and how they move and how they change or you know what's holding you back from modeling all the potential permutations of a given area of a virion's coat and the shapes they could take and the immunogen- immunogenicity?
3: I it's very difficult to do that because that's a structural biology question and um it's really very very tricky to figure out what the you know ultimate limits are and how much it could change um uh, jesse bloom and and others have done some wonderful experiments where they keep subs they sort of substitute every single amino acid on on this hemoglobin protein to see does it still function does it not and under sort of those circumstances where you just substitute one Amino acid time it seems to be pretty tolerant of of variation, but um, you know it would be an impossible exercise to try and mutate all of them in every single possible way to see what it might do. But we can rely on nature, and that's what we've always done to show us what can survive, so we know that what we see in nature are only a finite subset of all the possible confirmations. And that's what we rely upon to make our judgments on extent of variation of this virus.
2: Okay. So you found a different way to characterize the variation in such a way that you think you'll be able to get all the variations of this one particular area and therefore stop the virus from from affecting people.
3: Couldn't have put it better. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) Well, very
2: good. Uh, Sunetra, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to keep tabs? Where can they go?
3: Well, obviously, these are all out and, um, as, as academic papers, but um, we, I guess, so the company that's licensed our technology is called Blue Water Vaccines. So that, that might be a good place to um, keep tabs on the flu vaccine part of things. Otherwise, I guess one is stuck with um, sort of my website, which I'm going to have to rehaul now that we're coming out of this coronavirus pandemic phase. So, But for the moment, I think going to the Blue Water Vaccines website would be a good place to to keep yourself abreast of what we're doing in that space.
2: Okay. Well, very good. Sinesha, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
3: My pleasure.
0: Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.